0: Okay. No. Yeah. Doesn't sound pleasant at all. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Fair. Ah. I never tend to go to the blowjob section of B and Q.
1: I'm Alan Gerding, and this is the Tuesday Night Podcast. It's the only podcast in the entire multiverse that is about the stories we make while playing the games we love on, around, and even under the gaming table. I'm talking board games. I'm talking tabletop games. And with me is a man who needs no introduction, my friend from the Shut Up and Sit Down show, and also from the land known as Ing, it's Matt Lees. How are you, Matt?
0: Hello, I'm good, Alan. I really like listening to the intro theme for your podcast because it's kind of like stadium pop, and I can't help but then imagine you sort of like topless waving your arm around the air whilst thousands of people have lighters and singing along.
1: It's pretty accurate as well, minus the thousand of people. Give it time. Just give it time. But I am going to be at Shucks this year. I'm excited.
0: I'm really looking forward. You're one of my favorite people coming to Shucks, really, because you just you bring just an insane amount of energy, Stop. and we're just so very lucky to have you coming. No, no, seriously, keep stopping it. Just keep stopping it. Because you've seen how little energy I have when we're at that show. Honestly, having people who can bring positive energy, it's so important.
1: How can anyone not bring positive energy? It's so. It's no joke and I'm not trying to start this show with blowing too much smoke up your bum. (laughs) It is an amazing show. You all do a great job of right away setting everyone straight saying, hey, we're here for fun and we're here for the right reasons. You definitely have a lot of terms of behavior. It's so polite and kind and nice and fun and it's like the combination of all the best cons because you get all of the gaming like you do in Board Game Geek but you also have a nice exhibit area but the events after events after events that's what has to wear you down dang man so it's a good show oh yeah thank you very much it's very kind but yeah
0: we you know we feel like we've set some of the tone for what it is and what we want it to be but really like at the end of the day it's the scale of it is so much beyond what we are what we can do so we do just rely on having amazing people coming and bringing similar feels and energies to it to be able to actually kind of
1: scale it up in something like that so yeah always really appreciative Here's what I want to do today, Matt. I'm going to put you in the hot seat and ask you the hardest questions. It's my goal to make sure you regret ever coming onto this show and (laughs) probably never see me ever again. No, not really. (laughs) You could try. Here's what this show has done in the past so much, I think. We have gotten the perspective of plenty of publishers because I'm a publisher, Sean McCoy, my business partner. We work together at Tuesday Night Games, and we've had plenty of game designers on the show. And you've been on the show, but we haven't really gotten the perspective of what it is actually like to be a critic behind the scenes. What is the life of a critic? Because in the last episode, we had Ben Kanellis, who designed Blood Feud, and he just talked about what it feels like to get eviscerated by Matt Lees and Quentin mm. Smith from Shut Up and Sit Down. And I figured to be very apropos to just invite you on and talk about what it's like from your point of view, because there's multiple points of view in every story and every single one has some form of validity. Oh, of course. I mean, I think it's completely
0: valid to, to go through something like that is horrible. It's a really unpleasant thing to, to have something that you've made being really dismissed by critics. That's obviously unpleasant. And I've had that. That happens to me as well. Like, it happens to me all the time. So I completely sympathise with it and it's an incredibly unpleasant thing to have to happen. It's just that sometimes these things have to happen. That's when you get into a fiddlier zone because then deciding when things have to happen and when they don't is an interesting part of the job and it's very much a part of the job that we dwell on an awful lot. And I I found it really interesting listening to the podcast, uh, the last episode you did. Some of it was obviously very difficult listening for me, but it's upsetting to know that you've quite directly caused somebody to be upset. But it's complicated. I think there was a point you made, a second point you made, was was in your three points of maybe things could be better, was saying maybe Press shouldn't cover things until they're ready. And I think that's a really interesting point.
1: I, w- I would love to hear your answer. Should Press cover games that are prototypes that have yet to be made? Go on, sir.
0: Well, and I think that's the thing. Is I think you were, you were posing the question, which, should they? Should they actually do this or maybe not? I think that you kind of have to, yeah. I think the key element of that is not covering things if people don't want you to cover them. And that's the tricky part of it, is it's about consent and it's about having those honest relationships and honest conversations and having trust and accountability. And I think I'm quite proud of the fact that we've never had any gotchas, we've never had any leaks, we've never had anything we've done which has really annoyed a publisher for reasons that are legitimate.
1: Oh... That's just a good caveat. There's an asterisk there. Yes. <laughs> I would love to pressure you for illegitimate reasons for being upset with you.
0: Oh, of course. I mean, no, that's easy. I mean, I don't want to give examples for that. We've had people who have been excited that we're going to cover their game and then we cover their game and we're not 100% positive about their game. Sometimes then publishers are annoyed with us and that's not fair because we're just doing our job and they're just doing our job. And I must admit this is something that happens very, very rarely because most people understand the relationship and they understand the nature of the beast. You get some wins and you get some losers. In fact, we've just recently had a thing where we reviewed a game quite positively. And the previous game we reviewed, it wasn't a negative review, but it was kind of middle of the road. It was like, there are some good things about this, but there are some bad things about that. But they ended up quite annoyed with us because they felt that we'd been mean. It's understandable that people feel that and i think it's a difficulty that we have in this industry and it's not necessarily something that i want to change in this industry but it's a difficulty of having a small industry where people are tiny companies that are very interconnected and everybody cares you know yeah when i used to work in video games back in the day if you gave negative coverage to a video game that a pr was promoting if that pr was then annoyed with you or wanted to blacklist you, or didn't want to deal with you again. That was incredibly unprofessional. And that did happen to me as well, but that was incredibly unprofessional on their part.
1: Yeah, there's a whole steeped history of video games being corrupt because they'd pay so much money for advertising in some game review magazine. You could only naturally be inclined to continue to review those games well. The understanding is that corrupts the reviewer. Then, if you're taking money from your advertisers, your marketing dollars, it can
0: certainly get very fuzzy. And I mean, I never was at party firsthand to seeing any of any of the direct corruption. Although I know that there was some, but mostly, to be honest, in the big name American sites, you know, like the big the big dogs, where it got really iffy. You know, there was the stuff with GameSpot and the review and Jeff Goodzman and all that stuff. Right. But, what was more common would be that you would have a situation whereby you would have somebody who was an editor of a, a publication and they were a little bit more involved with the business side of things. They weren't directly profiting from ads, et cetera, marketing, but they would be in contact with the ad people and they would know what adverts were going in the magazines, et cetera. And they would know that maybe this company had spent a lot of money for months and months and months advertising this product and were likely to be doing the same in the future. Now, if you've got a game of theirs that's coming out and you need to have it reviewed, it's not as simple as saying, right, well, we've got to give it a good review, but you can see how it would be very easy for somebody who is in control of the overall editorial of the publication, but also has a knowledge of the, the financial workings, to maybe give that review copy to somebody who has a habit of reviewing things a little more softly, rather than having giving it to a reviewer.
1: Someone who eviscerates it and tears it apart.
0: Yes. So you can kind of you can kind of see I was always one of the eviscerators, to be honest. And there were times where my boss said, eh, I'm not gonna give this to you to review. And I was kinda of like, all right, that's it's not my place to be like, you should give it to me to review. It's his choice. At the same time, you're like, okay, fine. And mostly it was for stuff that honestly just didn't really matter. It was for like quarter page reviews, for tiny things, for games that people didn't really care about and our readership wasn't really going to read about anyway. So I didn't feel like it was massively going against the interest of what my job was and what our our remit was and what our audience needed. But you can see how easy it is for things just to be slightly softened.
1: I know just in the board game industry, I can think of very specific reviewers that always tend to candy coat their reviews and other reviewers that seem to be the opposite where they almost like nothing. And that's just in our very small industry. Validating what you're saying, I can imagine being the editor or the publisher of a magazine and you have a full two-page spread advert of some game. And on the very next page, maybe on the page across from it, you have the review that dogs the game. Oh, yeah. That sounds awful. Don't get me wrong. That happened. I've got to
0: be honest. There were occasions where you could clearly see when it was something menial and unimportant and somebody just went, okay, but I've got to be clear. My editor in this job was fantastic. Like The first review I wrote when I joined the magazine was for Operation Flashpoint something. And it was like a a modern shooter and it had some of the worst, ugliest politics I've ever seen. It was just such an ugly piece of work. It was horrible. And I tore it apart. They just had months and months and months of advertising and there was no question about it.
1: Yeah. I'm also surprised to hear that you're the eviscerator.
0: <laughs> well, I used to be is the thing. You have to remember that, I, you know, I've been doing this now for a long time. I've been a professional critic for about a decade, I guess. And very much in my earlier days of, of being a critic, I was very different. you got to question why people want to be critics. And I think it's safe to say that most people who want to be critics, they kind of got something to prove. They want people to see them as smart. And it's easy in the early days to get that validation of being smart by being somebody who can very cleverly pick things apart and be mean about things for the sake of humor. It's very easy Mm -hmm. and it gets a really great reaction and it feels fun. But I've definitely softened as I get older. I still have rules and have things that I need to do and I have things that are important to me and things that aren't, but I take no pleasure whatsoever in being negative about products that are things that people have made anymore because I know that that's that's just a horrible thing to do. And I think this is true of most critics as they get older because you start to meet the people whose work you've attacked. You start to realize the throwaway jokes you've made about someone's product has actually impacted them in a way which is really cruel. And I think I'm quite careful about that now. I remember when I did my review of Container, I was very mean about the art in that game. And I was fine with being very mean about the art in that game because it was absolutely dreadful. (laughs) But it's not something I would usually do. It's just when there's clearly been such a a lack of care there that I think, well, actually, you know what? Like, you're not allowed to be upset about this. You've clearly, you've not, you know. I think
1: it would be unsafe for you not to comment on it because anyone with two eyeballs in their skull would see, oh my goodness, this art is ugly. And it would be almost irresponsible if you didn't comment on it. I think it's not about not commenting on it. It's about how you do it and how you frame it. And I think more
0: often than not, when something isn't good, it's not like, why is this terrible? How is this so bad? Why are they screwed this up so much? It's more like, usually you can see what they were trying to do. And you think, ah, you know, and sometimes they're just trying to save money. And you think, okay, they were clearly trying to save some money on the art. I don't think it was a bad call. And I think it's, it's important to do that, to try and see the good. And you don't excuse it. You don't go, oh, well, they were trying, so let's not be mean about it. You still have to say, oh, it's, it's not good.
1: But you don't have to be a dick about it. Now, do you think you've been a dick about it in the past?
0: Oh, absolutely. Yeah, no, especially when I was back in um, video game days. It's, it's very easy. People love it. People love it. If you look at the most successful modern YouTube-style critics, they're all dicks about it. You know, <laughs> like it's the thing. People love it, and it's incredibly enticing and exciting, funny when you're young. One of my favourite critics when I was younger, by a country mile, was a uh, Charlie Brooker, who. Has since gone on to become a writer and does things like Black Mirror and stuff. And I had the fortune to work with him briefly a wow. little while ago, and that was incredible. But he found the same thing. He, he spent his early career garrotting stuff in, a, in an incredibly funny way, but then he started to meet the people who he'd hurt. And he was like, well, I didn't, you know, I didn't really mean it, but it doesn't really matter. So I, I feel like the key thing we find now is when we're saying something is negative, We don't take any pleasure in that anymore, and I I definitely used to take a certain glee in being like, "This is bad, and I'm going to tear it apart." And I think that's why, like, with our job, the most difficult and annoying thing we tend to have is every now and then one of a handful of rumors that bubbles up into the conversation space of the industry is that, "Oh, shut up and sit down, just do negative reviews because they're like hipsters and because they want to be different." And it's like we
1: hate. Well, that isn't true. I would
0: definitely not say that. No, but there there are there is a, a very prominent outlet within the board game space that thinks that about us. There's like you know one of the big players, actually legitimately thinks that that's what we do.
1: I'd like to give an actual spectrum though. I was surprised when you said that you're the eviscerator back in the past because when I look at Cool Ghosts, your channel on video games, most of that is incredibly incredibly positive. And I would think that's mostly because you get to choose the games that you've discussed. And you probably want to choose the games for which you have uh, a certain endearment for. And then I look at a lot, as you said, other YouTubers like John Tron, for instance, his whole gig is he just tears apart whatever he can. And he's moved on from video games and he talks about workout videos and products and whatever and it's just all humor of how he's just making fun of these commercials products whatever minorities etc
0: yeah well this is the thing it's like it's a, <laughs>
1: yes, it's, you- it's a it's a dark path
0: and i think i think it's interesting that you point out my modern work and say well this doesn't make sense but in a way it makes perfect sense because my work now is a reaction to who i used to be my most famous work was seven or eight years ago when I was making viral videos about the video game industry and I was kind of taking the mick and I was doing it in a fun way of being like poking fun but people clearly liked it they saw it as being a bit mean and that really made me think about that and made me think that like it eats up a bit of you as well it's like an engine that fuels itself and just keeps eating away at you and I don't know I just started to realize it's weak it's basically punching down. And if something's bad, if a product is bad, then laughing at it and having fun and getting your kicks from kicking something that's already bad is just rubbish. So I think I started to realize that... I, I had a point when I was working a long time ago, must have been six, seven years ago, where I, I made a video about a video game just because I loved it and it was just positive. And that was my first kind of viral video. And I think that started the seed. And I remember having a conversation with a guy who I knew who worked in games about, like, I just want to make videos about why things are great. And he's like, well, you can't do that. <laughs> <laughs> no one will listen. And you know what? He's right. You kind of can't do that. Like, <laughs> That's horrible though. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. But it's, it is what it is. I mean, the thing about Cool Ghosts as a project is it is all about positivity and it is all about just like highlighting things that are interesting and good and about sometimes poking fun at the industry and being a bit mean about the industry. But hopefully with enough lightheartedness that people see. Actually, you're not punching down,
1: you're punching up. But it doesn't have a massive audience. Well then, quick plug for Cool Ghosts. If you're listening to this right now and you have not watched the editing and brilliant bizarre magic that is Cool Ghosts and you like video games, and even if you don't like video games, you should go ahead and watch it. I'm a personal favorite of The Colonel. I still want to know if he can do birthday parties. He's an amazing (laughs) character portrayed. Bye, aye, I'm
0: not sure he's suitable for birthday parties.
1: Matthew? Yeah, I'm
0: just in the bath. Uh, make yourself at home. Sure. So, I had the weirdest dream last night. Uh, I'm actually a bit busy at the moment. Should you be playing that in the bath? Are you, oh, are, you right? are you all right? Yeah? I feel a bit weird from this Sonic the Hedgehog drink. Right. Mate, that's bleach. Why would Sega make bleach?
1: Mm-hmm. Oh. oh.
0: Oh, look, I know I'll sort you out. A nice round of hot toast. Uh, for me, that is a passion project. I think it's the best thing I've ever done. I think it's amazing. I'm happy to blow smoke on my own ass about that because I also know how long it takes me to make it and how much it costs me to make it. But I also know that it's never going to be a huge big deal. It's too it's too weird and it's too positive. I've made my peace with that. But I, And I feel like it's just a case of not allowing yourself to get carried away with negativity as a critic because it doesn't lead to good places. And it does leave me slightly concerned You know about... Uh, influencers in board games i can see some of these complaints in terms of people getting paid to do board game previews or whatever or videos about upcoming games i can see that's not ideal and i can see that that's not what we want really but i have felt that a lot of the tenor of the conversations of people attacking this stuff just remind me so much of stuff i've seen in video games and being like you know what the people who are gonna get championed for fighting against this stuff are not good people they're not the people we want at the forefront of our industry
1: So to be clear, when you say fighting, what is the argument here that reviewers shouldn't get paid whatsoever by anyone versus reviewers should get their fair cut? And which side do you think is the bad people? I mean,
0: it's basically one of these things where, honestly, I, I don't think reviewers should be getting paid money to do reviews from publishers in any capacity. I think that's just, you shouldn't do that,
1: you know? Because you mentioned rules earlier and I'm wondering, is this one of the rules?
0: Yeah. <laughs> I mean, that would be one of my rules personally, right? And I think a few years ago, I would have been very hardline about this and I would have been like, you shouldn't be taking money from publishers to make stuff. You should be making stuff, making stuff for people or for yourself. If you want to make your hobby your job, I know that's really hard. And I know that I've been incredibly lucky and fortunate and privileged to be able to do that. But I also know that, For me, if you can't do that without so much compromise, maybe just have a hobby and a job because that's just journalistic integrity. And the thing is, no one has to do that, but I think you should. My rules are basically mostly journalist rules. We're technically not even seen as journalists most of the time, but I just try to behave like one because it's what I care about. You are... You are a journalist, let's be
1: clear. Uh, I try I try to be, but uh, the thing is... No, 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 no. You are, whether you feel it or not, you are taking on the role and responsibility of journalism. No matter the level or amount or degree, you are a journalist. Professional criticism is a form of journalism and stuff. I'm just a
0: lot softer about this stuff these days because I know that it's hard and I know that you've got people who just love this nerdy hobby and they want to do it and they're trying and trying and trying and you know the the market is oversaturated you've got millions of people on youtube doing stuff people are tired they're overworked it's hard to make money it's hard to get by and then when people have the opportunity to like basically do what they love as their job but it involves like taking a bit of money from publishers to make videos about games like i don't begrudge it anymore personally i think it's kind of crap and i wouldn't do it myself but i cannot get behind the kind of culture of becoming enraged about this and, and attacking people for it. Because I don't know, I just feel like then we're only a tiny step away from the people who are then going, yeah, and what about these Instagram influencers who are all pretty women who are making money from and it's like, it reminds me so much of what we saw in 2014 with GamerGate of it just being so easy to co-opt that anger Yes, and point it towards bad places, you know?
1: No, it totally makes sense. You're simply saying that Taking money from publishers is not for you, but it's also not something that you should storm the castle about. One thing that I touched upon in last episode, I feel that you and Quinns are in a bit of a lose-lose situation because you talked about rules and the more popular you get, the more pressure there may be to have some definite rules of behavior and conduct, but at a cost of potential freedom. Oh yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I want to poke and test you on some of these rules, if you'll allow me. (laughs) Yeah, sure. Go for it. Matt, I consider you a sincere friend. I honestly believe that you contribute to the greater good in the world. I think your motives are correct. And I have had plenty of conversations with you, not just professionally, but behind the scenes before we go on stage for some events, etc., cetera, et cetera, And I thoroughly believe that you have a good heart and good intentions. So I'm proud to say that, yeah, I'm definitely a friend of Matt Lee's, not just the public persona, but also the man behind the scenes. So let me ask. Would you sincerely consider me one of your friends? Yeah, I would, definitely. But Matt, I'm a publisher and a game designer. So, is that a problem? Let's go.
0: Yeah, no, of course it is. And that's why you have to be so cautious with this stuff. What's really interesting about this is, is that you you have to just be aware of these things you cannot deny them you cannot shy away from them you cannot you know live in a bunker you can't just be like look i'm not going to talk to people because even if you're like well okay i'm not going to meet people i'm not going to hang out with them outside of strict work stuff that's like well yeah but even when you go to work there are going to be some people at work who you like working with and some people who you don't like working with you cannot live your life in a cage Uh, because also the question about this stuff is it becomes about objectivity exactly And that is a just a false thing to chase. The question is, how can you be more aware of the ways in which your subjectivity is being unhelpfully guided?
1: That's the key. We know through research, it is impossible to be unbiased. We have so many social psychology research studies where people are asked, hey, be as unbiased as possible and look at this video, who's at fault, and it is never objective. There's always subjectivity. Exactly. And I think to to go around pretending that you feel
0: like you're not really biased is both incredibly stupid and incredibly dangerous, because it means if you're not aware of your own processes, then your processes can potentially be very damaging. If you've got a basement full of weird radioactive material and monsters, but you just completely refuse to accept that that is real and you do not look in there, then you've got no idea what's in your basement. Like, you've got no idea. Maybe it's just a tiny goblin. Maybe it's an army of orcs. You don't know.
1: So what does that mean for Matt Lees and Quentin Smith reviewing Tuesday Night Games, talking about Alan Girding? What are the rules there? And I'm probably shooting myself in the foot here when I'm pressing this, The reality is, I don't care. If if you never review any of my games that we decide to publish, I'm fine with that. Tuesday Night Games probably isn't fine with that, but I'm fine with that because, number one, I value our friendship. But number two, this is for fun. When I made this company with Sean McCoy, I said, rule number one, we're in this for fun. So if you never even say anything about any of our games, hey... I still get to talk to you, hang out, but what is it in your rule book of, well, I'm friends with Alan, what does that mean when it comes to talking about things that involve Alan? Well, honestly,
0: unfortunately, what it mostly probably means is that we are more likely to be much more openly critical and much more quick to be critical of your work than we would have been if we weren't friends with you.
1: But that sounds unfair as well, no, because it, that is it, it, the reaction yeah. formation.
0: Yeah, no, it is. But I think it's not so much that you're going to be, you are going to be more negative. It just means you, you're just making sure that your mind is much more open to it. You're much more yeah. looking for problems, which is, yeah, which is, again, that's not ideal. That's
1: that reaction formation. You hear it and you're like, well, I don't want to be accused of fluffing this up just because we're friends with him. Yeah. So we got to be doubly mean. Well, so I wouldn't So should I, I never send you again?
0: <laughs> I wouldn't say doubly mean. I mean, I would say doubly Sure. That's what I mean. Like, so it just means you would look at things with a lot more-
1: Tomato, tomato, my friend. Well, I don't know.
0: Yeah. Like, I think it's, I think a really good example of that. Like kind of almost where sometimes we go, we wouldn't bother- you maybe do like, I mean, it was a really unfortunate thing recently in the fact that somebody else taught us how to play That's Not Lemonade. This was very late into the evening at a Danish convention. Uh, I'd had a few beers and I was talking to somebody and I was ostensibly playing the game with Quinns, but honestly, I was just talking to someone else and I had no idea what was going on in the game. And then he played it and was like, I don't really get this. Da-da-da. And then we talked about it on the podcast. And he said, I played it. I didn't really get it. And then it turned out that actually we've been taught the game kind of wrong, which is just a risk of being taught games by people. People make mistakes. But I think, you know, if it had been that we didn't know you and that you weren't also like Alan Girding, a name that is associated with a little bit of our stuff, a bit more, like you come and do shows with us and stuff, we maybe just would have ignored it and forgot about it. But we felt like, ah, Quinn's played this game. He didn't really rate it. So we're going to say that on the podcast. But at the same time, like, I think a, a good example of how this shakes out in the wild would be
1: with my review of Bargain Quest jonathan ying's game jonathan yeah jonathan ying great yeah. yeah he's he's one of the nicest guys anyone can meet i'll just it's say that unbelievably right now. nice like, it's, it's,
0: it's it's just it's wrong he's too nice
1: uh but yeah <laughs> he's nice and fun which is a tough combo exactly. because you usually get nice or you get fun he really knows how to, to line up. and it he's about.
0: fun to play games with because he's incredibly smart and really does game the games in a way that i cannot and yet also is up for just playing like fun stuff and doesn't get too bogged down with complexity which You look at that and you look at his game designs and you're like, ah, that's why. He makes light, fun games that are actually really tight and really good. But anyway... I played Bargain Quest and I'd said to Quenza, I said, I think this game might be really good. Really good. I really like it. It's a little box, it's really fun. And it was that thing of like, um, yeah. And we had to really kind of arm and R. And it was it was more a question of having to be sure and playing it more and more and more and more.
1: Do I like this because I love Jonathan? Exactly. Well, that's
0: a question you have to ask. Yeah, like we've been very positive about Jonathan. We've had right. him as guests on our podcast. We've done this stuff with him, like he's just got this game. Like, how does it look when we got this situation where it's a designer who we know and personally like, and he's done a kickstart for this game? He's going to do another one, and we're basically going to be selling copies of his game on Kickstarter.
1: Well, to be fair, the first edition was already out, so you weren't in danger of selling a game that wasn't already out, but he came out with the second edition. Exactly. And then he was able to share that review, which helped sell units for exactly. sure.
0: So that's that's always a thing. We're always aware of that. And you just have to question it. You're like, okay, I had fun with this game. But did I have fun with this game because I was being demoed it by Jonathan, who I liked, etc. So it just meant I had to play it more. I had to look at it more. I had to give it more scrutiny. Like maybe played it twice as many times as I would play a game if I didn't know the designer. Which, again, is that fair? Probably not. But it's all just about a little bit of a balancing act. And honestly, it's kind of impossible, especially with board games when you're reviewing stuff. The subjectivity there is insane.
1: By definition, it's subjective. By definition, there's no objectivity when it comes to your opinion of a game. But also,
0: it's an engine that you're activating with other humans. So be like, you know, I should be caveating in all of our reviews saying, hey, you might not like this game if you don't play it with exactly the same people that I did. (laughs)
1: Like, you know, it's... Do you say that or do you just automatically assume that your audience understands
0: that? Well, you have to. I think you have to not treat your audience as being stupid. And I think, unfortunately, without constantly caveating this stuff, you do occasionally annoy people. But to me, it's just insulting to people's intelligence to keep doing that. Like, you know, it's like I used to get a lot of the time in video games, and I still get it sometimes, people saying to me, but Matt, you're so forceful. You always convey your opinion as being the truth. You say, this is this, this is this. It is. It's my truth. (laughs) And you don't have to have it. And I think what people get stuck on is if you're a very good communicator and you convey what you think in a strong way, people sometimes find themselves double-checking themselves and being like, but I didn't like it, but he likes it. And they find that then creates some sort of weird internal struggle and it it shouldn't, you know, I can like it and you can not like it. And that's fine.
1: This totally makes me think of the heat that Quinn's got for his Blood on the Clock Tower review slash preview. People were upset, from my understanding, for a couple of reasons. One, you broke the rule. Again, it comes up in quotes, rule of not talking about games that have yet to be released but Quinn's spun gold about blood on the clock tower and there's plenty of people out there that had really horrible sometimes may even say traumatic experiences with blood on the clock tower and they felt that their voice was silenced with Quinn's. Hmm. but what you're saying is you have to understand take that as an audience member that's the point is that we talk about our own opinions and we talk about our own experiences we shouldn't have to always say but this is my experience your experience could be totally different it's
0: just a waste of words like it's it's i've had people before when i used to be a video games critic say you shouldn't say this game is exciting you should say i think that this game is exciting and it's like it's implied as the same thing like it's just a waste of words and i i think that that confusion is frustrating and i think most people get it It's difficult, and especially it's difficult as critics, because there is an impetus to be right, in massive inverted floaty quotes. But you're not going to be right, you're just going to be right for you. Like, Blood and the Clocktower is a fantastic example of Quinns trying to convey the fact that, yes, this game is massively expensive. In my mind, for my money, it's overpriced. And I know that they're doing it at the cheapest price they can, too much for me. But for him, it's not, and he loves it. And all you can do is convey how you feel about something. The fact that people watched it and said, "Well, hey, I watched this and you said that this was all these things, but I don't feel it is. That's fine. That's the review doing its job. This is how Quinn's feels. Maybe you align with that. Maybe you don't.
1: Is it then almost a compliment then if someone is so emotionally disagreeing because they align with you so much that they feel hurt when they don't? But Quinn's, I didn't like it. How could you like a game I didn't like? I feel betrayed. Is that then a compliment?
0: It kind of is. It's just a difficult side effect, I think, of that just we need more websites like ours, really. Like, I f- honestly feel like we need more competition. We need more room for it. We need more.
1: That's a tough thing to do. I mean, there's so many reviewers out there, but the effect, <laughs> let's be very honest here. You don't all just review games. You entertain the shit out of everybody, too, because you do. Let's just look at your most recent review that you just put up. Pipelines, correct? Yeah. You start with the whole joke of piping. And some people may see that and think, what a waste of time. I just want to hear the review. Well, those people that are watching that and not enjoying your jokes, are not going to be your fans because that's pretty much why I watch Shut Up and Sit Down over any of the other reviewers is because of your own personality being injected into that. It's brilliant. So it's shocking to me to think that anyone could begin to compete because now you'll have people that will try to do it the same way as you, but won't. It's, it's don't, a difficult I market to fill. Yeah, fill. See,
0: I don't know if we need people to be really competing in terms of entertainment. And I think, yeah, like, we do try and put a lot of entertainment into things, um, especially the Pipeline Review is a really good example, actually, of like, it's probably more entertaining than it is like great criticism. I don't think it's bad criticism. I very much smooth over a lot of sp- specifics of the game in favor of giving people a flavor of how it works.
1: Which is one of the things I love because you don't waste time teaching the dang game. Yeah. Because I'm I not mean, there for that. Yeah.
0: Yeah, no, and, and I'm happy with that. But I, I know that some some weeks when I'm writing and reviewing something, it's going to be a review that's slightly funnier, and some weeks it's going to be one which is more dry. Like my solo reviews are always like a bit of a weird mix. Some of them don't have any jokes at all. Like some of them are just me critiquing a game. And you know, I kind of don't fight that personally. I, I think that yes, people have expectations of what you make and what you do, but humans changing. If I'm in a really silly mood, then maybe I'll make a really silly video. If I'm in a really serious mood, maybe I'll make a serious one. I think there's room for both those things. But I think that the issue we have is that honestly, like we need more good reviewers. We need people who can actually critique things, who can actually understand game design, who can really convey how a game feels. And they don't necessarily need to be entertainers. We need that because it is a slightly lose-lose situation for us at the moment, I feel. And I- I'm not too stressed about that i'm just taking it and it is what it is but we kind of can't please anybody right now if you look back at what shut up and sit down was back in the day it was just madness it was just silly gonzo madness and occasionally saying a game was good or a game wasn't good And that was basically
1: it. It wasn't- But that was before you were massively popular and had this massive amount of power. The thing is, people are always saying now, oh, I just want more like early stuff, like the early madness. And then I do a video- It's such a cliche thing to say. I mean, you don't even have to say anymore. It's actually getting my goat a little bit. Because anytime someone says, well, I only like their early stuff- I just want to say, man, idiot. It's because they became popular. Everyone liked their early stuff, and now they are more beholden to basically uphold this value. But you liked it when it was the Wild Wild West, and they could do whatever the hell they necessarily wanted to. Am I hitting the market on that? I mean, yeah.
0: Like, it's funny how, you know, people will say, oh, I loved it when you threw a game out of a window, and that was the review of the game. And it's like, yeah, sure you did. But like, to go back at what we talked about earlier, we've met the people who published that game, and they were really hurt by that. And you know, like that's the way it works. You can be mean and funny and stupid and flippant, but when you have power, you can continue to do that, but you're going to hurt people. And do you want to hurt people? And I think that's the tricky thing about being a critic is really accepting that sometimes you're going to have to hurt people, but you just make sure that you do it for good reasons and you don't do it without thinking about it.
1: In the case of Blood Feud, you thought it was necessary because you needed something to be said, not only because the, the game wasn't enjoyable, But because specifically when it comes to mega games, that culture is so sensitive because it requires so many people to be involved that anything that may turn people away from even trying it is detrimental to that community. So one thing that you kept on saying during that podcast review of Blood Feud was hey this isn't representative of a mega game and you want people to know that so it doesn't turn people away from a mega game including the anecdote of you telling a player, hey, make sure you try a mega game after this. Yeah.
0: So I think when we talk about stuff on the podcast, I don't think it's really fair to use the term review because we, we are clear on the podcast again and again that our opinions of games that are not out are not final opinions and that they shouldn't. You know, we've had people buying games based on the, us being excited on podcasts and then being like, oh, the game isn't very good. And we've said it, we say it all the time. And again, this comes back to respect. I know that some people are going to listen to an opinion of an upcoming game and treat it as a review.
1: Yeah, you're referring to a conversation that we had off the air where I disagreed with you because on the podcast, it doesn't matter how many disclaimers you state, people are still going to treat your words as reviews when you talk about a game, especially when you use words like it was a disappointment in almost every regard. So uh, go on. I'm so sorry.
0: Yeah, but the thing is, we have to treat our audience with respect and we have to treat them as being intelligent. And we have to tell them, hey, these things are subject to change. The podcast is not a source of reviews. If you want to know what we actually think of a thing, it's just a kind of a sense check of, of how we feel after playing something once. And sometimes it's going to be wrong.
1: So instead of a review, you'd say early reactions. What is the term you would use instead of a review then there? I mean,
0: preview is a sensible word, really. Like, you know, it's like a little look at something. And especially the difficult thing with Blood Feud is that we had a situation, whereby the publisher of the game said check out the game and we're like yeah we're going to come check out this game then we went to it to play it and uh, you know we turned up and they had all these cameras there and they were really expensive looking cameras you know and I know I know my cameras obviously set up for the potential kickstarter coming up yeah so we were like oh well this is kind of a thing and then we had to basically say to them well listen you know if you're going to take footage of us playing a mega game cuz you know you're doing a thing with your friends for three hours. And even if you're not enjoying the mega game, it's going to be very easy to get footage of you laughing and having a good time, as we did that evening. Right. Because you're with your friends. Yes. So I was like, I felt uncomfortable with that. So we had to go and say, look, you know.
1: Understandably you- so. That yeah. was really shysty, man. That's kind of bullshit. Let's call it the way it is, especially knowing the power that you have. And I hate using that term power. But in reality, it is. Shut Up and Sit Down is now a powerhouse. You are arguably most popular reviewers internationally. And so to not even ask, hey, can we film you or take a picture of you playing our game? Man, that's total false pretenses there. How much did that influence your comments then on the podcast? I I mean... (sighs) No, I don't
0: think so. No, I mean, honestly, like I was more than willing to chalk that one up to just naivety, frankly, because people would, you know, why wouldn't you? You know, we're doing these sessions. These people are going to be there. Oh, we get some video of it. That could be cool.
1: Consent's really important. I mean, I, let's be very clear. You even said consent. Of course it is, but... Especially in this case, too. But go on. I'm sorry. I'm riled up. Ah. No, 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 no. And that,
0: that's and that's fair. But as I say, you know, I used to be the riled up type, and these days I'm not. And I think a lot of the problems we have sometimes is this is an industry which in some ways is in its infancy. Even though it's growing and it's big, and people just get a bit overexcited. And maybe people don't have as much experience with other industries that are larger, the relationships between press and publishers, and they haven't had that experience yet. And they don't understand that, you know, it's it's a weird thing. And we have lots of incidents of people who clearly get a bit overexcited and think, Oh, maybe I can use some of Shut up and sit down's clout to make my thing look better. And it's like, well, that's kind of you can't do that. <laughs> like that's you can't do that without asking us.
1: Right. That's the risk. The gamble is if I give a reviewer something to review, I run the risk of a bad review. So I have to really believe in what I'm giving them. But if I were just to run up to some celebrity, I don't know, there's Brad Pitt and I throw one of my games at him and he catches it in the air defensively. And then I take a snapshot and then publish it. Brad Pitt loves. That's not right. And that almost equates to what was going on there. So they're skipping the system. I mean, it would have
0: done if it wasn't something that we just resolved straight away. It was just a very clear thing of having to say, oh, are you filming this? Okay, well, that's fine. But if you want to use any of the footage, basically, they agreed that they would okay at first.
1: Okay, good. I'm glad you shared that. It was fine.
0: It was just one of these things of being like, oh, this is fine. They'll either film it and we'll have an amazing time. And then they ask us if they can use the footage for the Kickstarter. And we're like, yeah, sure. Go for it. Fill your boots. Or, Or we'll play it and we won't have a good time. And they'll ask us if we can share it. And we'll go, actually, no. So, That was not an issue. That was fine. Basically, it's a tricky situation of when you have publishers who are wanting something from you, they have to understand that sometimes they're not going to get what they want. There are exceptions to this, however. If you play something, then they say, actually, you know, you can play this, but we don't want you to talk about it yet because it's not finished. We will always agree to that. It may be that we don't play it, To be honest, I don't think I would have given three hours of an evening at a convention to a project, which was from people who we didn't really know very well, and not being able to talk about it. We probably just wouldn't have given it the time, but we wouldn't have gone against that. If they'd said, play this, sure, but please don't talk about it. The problem is, is they want you to play it, and they want you to talk about it because they've got a Kickstarter coming up. And the other problem is that, you know, we have a situation where we have a publisher who is actively pitching this game as being, this is a mega game in a box. And, you know, it it was difficult to hear the designer of the game saying, it's not that, it's not what we wanted. I don't want anything I'm saying to come across as being me taking anything away from his experience and his feelings, because I think they're all 100% valid. But when you give your product to a publisher, how they then deal with press and how they frame it and how they represent your product it's kind of in their hands and the sad thing about all of this stuff is obviously it sucks for us to have like you know had a situation where we've upset someone but really it's a conversation in this circumstance it should be a conversation for a developer and a publisher because the problem we had is we came away from this experience feeling like very strongly from what had been shown to us and what have been said to us that this is a product which is very cynical. You know, it really did feel like something which was just trying to leap on the bandwagon with excitement about mega games to make some money. And you know what, listening to your podcast and listening to the developer of the game, talking about that and being heartbroken and and seeing that like, I'm not going to get into it. I don't think it's a great design in lots and lots of ways, but Mm -hmm. he clearly cared about it and it was clearly not for him a cynical thing.
1: Yeah, he he very clearly said, the last thing I want is to jump on some money grabbing. Because he's an architect. He's similar to me. He's exactly. not in this for the money. He's in it for the love of the game, for the love of the cardboard. But it sounds like what you are clearly saying is you were approached and said, here's a mega game. And that is not what was represented. Well, this is the thing. And this
0: is the problem is really, unfortunately, like the role of publishers is not just to get your game made and to get it out into the wild and to give you some money and give you a name. They are basically responsible for the PR for your product, right? Yeah. You're not just getting a thing made. And I think it's so difficult in an industry like this, where it's just so exciting to be like, I made a thing. But you do have to ask yourself questions. And you have to ask the people you're working with. And really, I would use this as more than anything just to, it's information for anyone out there who is a a wannabe designer is when you are working with publishers don't just sign away everything because you've got a deal ask questions like how are you going to market this how are you going to represent it like what are you going to do because as press when you're dealing with publishers you just have to trust two things really that a they're going to approach you with projects that actually legitimately they think are going to be of interest to you and that they think you're going to react well to and the b they're going to actually project and promote your product in the light in which it is intended. And unfortunately, in this case, we all unanimously just felt like this was an incredibly cynical product. And
1: that's kind of not our fault. Yes, well, I mean, and you are welcome to your opinion and your own experience. Like we've been saying just in this recording alone, that we all have a point of view and that is your point of view. And you shouldn't have to begin every review with saying, hey, this was our experience. Other people may have a different experience. I will say, though, it's very tough for a designer because getting published is a big thing. And so until you've been published enough times, there is not that amount of comfort to ask for things. And publishers know this. I know from the one standpoint is this person's never published anything before in their life. We don't have to give them as much, even though their game is much better than a game a lot of well-known publishers are making.
0: And I totally get that. I totally get that. And also, this is the other reason why I can't be annoyed by any of this stuff, you know, because it's exactly what I was saying about our side of the fence. There's not a lot of money in this industry. And most of the people no. are just doing it because they love it. It's one of those weird things where the industry is kind of growing and there's loads more stuff. And everybody kind of feels like there's probably loads more money. But I don't know
1: if there is, you know, and maybe it's there is. a naive thing to think. Yeah, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to make millions. In the board game industry, good luck, sir. I just
0: feel like you're having circumstances where people are maybe just cutting corners a little bit or doing things that maybe they wouldn't have done a few years ago. And it's just then there are elements where it gets a little bit unpleasant. And I don't begrudge any of this stuff. And I I honestly, I know you can't be a board game designer and go, I want this and this and this and this, or I'm walking. It is a fan project and you're not going to make much money from it. And just getting something published is a dream. Don't get me wrong. It's just that, you kind of have to accept that part of a publishing deal is that you are signing away control of something that's a difficult thing absolutely but it's it is a thing that you just have to kind of accept and um i mean uh, what i would say is that the thing we respect most is when we have publishers who just say oh we we go and say oh what about this game and they just go "Yeah, you don't want to look at that game and we get that a lot now right We get that a lot. And I've got so much time for that because they know it's a publisher's job. If you're reaching out to press to know what they're interested in, to know what they like, to know what they're not going to like. And it's like, you know, when we have people who put things in front of us and it's just either not good or really not what we're interested in, it's a bit like, oh, come on. It's just that it's a bad feeling for everybody. And I've got a lot of time when publishers go, hey, ignore these four games. We want you to look at this one
1: because, you know, they're not wasting our time because we don't want to say something's bad. It's almost the same relationship that designers have with publishers where you only show them the games that you think they'd actually publish. Yeah, right. So it's on the publisher's responsibility to show it to reviewers only games they think that they'll enjoy. And yeah, and I think that's totally fair.
0: And, you know, that's not the way that everyone should do things. Don't
1: get me wrong. Like, if you are,
0: like, a young up-and-start blog reviewer, uh, YouTuber, and you've got a publisher saying, oh, don't look at this one. Then you might be like, hey, no, I'm going to look at that one. And I'm (laughs) going to find out that that game is terrible. And I'm going to tell everyone that that game is terrible. And then that's fine. But that's the ecosystem kind of working because then you have a small niche blog that talks about why a game is not good. They get themselves some followers. And then people who are actually really into the hobby, who want to know what that's like, can dig it up, find it and be like, huh, thanks for that. That's useful. But for us with our clout, an hour reach to stand up on a podium and say, hey, look at this thing you've never heard of. It's bad. That just sucks. (laughs) It just sucks. We do do negative reviews when we have to, but it's usually because it's games that people are still talking about and people are still saying is good. And if we check them out and we're like, hey, you know what, this isn't that great. And there's no one out there saying that we kind of then feel like we've got a responsibility to the community to just offer that as an option. But a lot of this just comes down to the fact it does feel like now everybody knows that we have this power and this responsibility, but they expect us to be perfect because there's not anyone else to do it. And really, you know, I would relish to have other people reviewing stuff. And we have got reviewers who are great, no pun included, are fantastic reviewers. And there are a whole bunch of other things that are great, but I just wish that these things could be lifted up a bit higher so people could be like, hey, Really, in an ideal world, they'd be like, oh, out of these three reviews, I prefer this site's one this time. And that's fine. It's just the pedestal has been raised because everyone just keeps treating us as like the only source of it.
1: Respect, Matt. You did a great job explaining your standpoint. Shut Up and Sit Down only has so much time to invest in very specific projects slash reviews. And how you spend that time is crucial for your livelihood, basically. And that leaves plenty of room for other critics to rise to the top. And that benefits everybody. It benefits them, obviously, and it benefits the audience members as we have more variety to look at. But it also benefits you. But let's get back to those journalistic integrity rules that you want to set for yourself. I want to talk about monikers.
0: Yeah, the Monikers thing is really tricky because it's obviously like, yeah, we talk a lot about journalistic integrity and that's a complicated thing because we reviewed this game, yeah. And then after that they said, hey, do you want to do this thing? And we thought it would be really fun to do it because we love the game. I mean, my wife loves it. It's a great opportunity to write some awesome jokes. Yeah, and we did it and people really liked it. Of course that's complicated because now it means we have situations such as like, you know, the people who made Monikers and Wolfgang Garsch, who's a designer who I love, are uh, making Wavelength. Oh my goodness. We played it together at Last shot. Yeah, we we did. And the thing is, I, that's an interesting situation now because we've just done another Kickstarter for another bigger box of moniker stuff. And, you know, we have an ongoing, like, basically business relationship with the people who make monikers. At the same time, Wavelength is quite blatantly something very cool and very special. So it's like, what do we yes. do about that? And, you know, I don't have an answer to that yet. That's, that's like, a, that's a conversation we're going to have to keep having and having when the game's available, etc, etc. Cetera, et cetera, because it's just, it's such a cool thing. But... It's tricky, you know, and sometimes the answer to this is just to get somebody who hasn't been involved in it at all to review it. I basically was in charge of the most recent Monica's expansion. It was basically my baby, and I worked with some fantastic writers. I worked with Eva Foxfort. Uh, they do writing the news for Sheldon, Sit Down. They're brilliant and do a bunch of other things in the future, hopefully. Some reviews, some written stuff, some exciting teasers for stuff coming up in the future. And Philip War did some incredible work on it, I and then I Pip. tied it all together. Yeah, Pip's brilliant, but I'm as a piece of work, I'm profoundly happy with it. And it's interesting because. Because you have this situation where it's not really just about money, it's it's like it's fun. It's really fun. I got to make this thing, and
1: I think it's really good. And your cards are good, sir. I'm blowing more smoke up your way, but it's Thank well you. deserved because the first whew, can't wait.
0: The next slot is even better. Like it's a lot better. Like I went back and looked at the first slot after writing all of the new ones, and I'm like, these new ones are better. <sighs> Yeah. So it's tr- it's tricky. On paper, we shouldn't have done it. But at the same time, it's like, well, this is a fun thing to do. And I really want to do it. And I think that's when you have to have some fuzz room and you have to be like, you know, at the end of the day, we try and be journalistic, but we are also entertainers. And a lot of the reason that people love us is because we're providing entertainment to them. And the thing that really blew me away with the first Monica's box is not that it just did quite well, but people really liked it. People had fun with it. and people thanked It us really stands
1: it. out. I love Alex Haig and Justin Vicker from Palm Court Games. They do phenomenal work. But- I'm going to say when I played the shut up and sit down expansion, it was notably better. I think it plays
0: really differently. like that's the that's the interesting thing is like the first time we just played you know wrote some jokes. But in both boxes, particularly the new box, there is more game design thinking in that, and it does play differently to normal monikers. It's easier, but it's a lot more fun. And that's that's a right. conscious choice, you know. Anyway, like I, I think this stuff is is fascinating. But increasingly as I get older and I get less and less fiery about truth and the media and speaking truth to power, and I still try and do all of that stuff when we need to, etc. But really for me now it's like it's great to be able to brighten up people's lives a bit, to be able to create communities that meaningful people for people like things like shucks things like the website things to ha- to have a space where people feel welcomed and that they can belong and that they don't feel judged for not being the perfect geek and that increasingly is more important to me and i wouldn't say that gets in the way of, of my ability to be a critic and to do my job in that regard as a journalist but it's definitely not what drives me anymore and I think that's fine
1: Matt, thank you so much for coming on the show. I really appreciate it. I am looking forward to further friendship and shocks and all that jazz. Is there any last thoughts and feelings you want to share on the podcast before we go?
0: I think it's always uh, fantastic to talk with you, Gallen. Like, we have interesting conversations and you push me and ask me questions that people wouldn't, which is always something I think that friends have to do. So I thank you for that. Um, I, yeah, I, I just think I I really would like to see more people jumping in and having a go. Trying to do reviews. And I know that that's tricky. And I know that financially, it's just so hard to make this stuff work. But it's um, the industry would be richer for it. Because I think that like at the moment, we have basically have most reviews outside of ours are just rules, explanations. And then at the end, somebody says it's good or it's bad. And, and I think we can do better. And it would be wonderful if we could just have more breadth of voices and opinions. And meanwhile, I'll just continue to just making fun, stupid things and hope that people like them.
1: It's very interesting that someone is asking for what equates to more competition. <laughs> I'd love some. You don't hear me saying, you know what we need? More podcasts about the stories behind the games rather than the games themselves. That's what we need. I'm not saying that, but Yeah, you I'd,
0: I'd say that. And I'd also say to a much wider audience, I'd really say just try and cut people some slack when people are starting out or trying to find their feet or trying to get an audience just try not to let that anger take over because honestly, you're just going to push people away and we're going to end up just like video games having all of the most famous personalities just being angry dudes. And we don't want that. So just, just try and be patient.
1: <laughs> try and be nice. How do people, if they do want to support Shut Up and Sit Down, what's the best way they can do that, Matt?
0: Uh, well, if you want to support Shut Up and Sit Down, you can go onto our main website and there'll be a button that says uh, for the gold club. I think or you can go Shut Up and Sit Down forward slash donate. But honestly, I'd say like in the context of what we just talked about this time, if you listen to what I said and you, you like it, then please just go and find a small niche creator that you like and find a way to give them some money because uh we're not in a terrible position now we're very lucky and i i think support some other people you're a saint matt Jeez, uh, we need some competition because everyone keeps expecting us to be everything for everyone at all times and that's not healthy so please and support somebody
1: else. I can see. Yeah, there is a little bit of selfish motivation there. <laughs> well, if you want to support this show, all you have to do is share the shit out of this episode. We're on social media at PlayTKG. Please leave us your comments, questions, concerns. Email us podcast at TuesdayNightGames.com. Matt, thank you so much again for taking the time to come onto the show. Thank you so much for your candor and your friendship. And even the contributions you make to uh, the gaming community and, dare I say, the society as a whole. You're doing it right, in my opinion. That's probably why you're my friend. Yeah! Uh, Anyway, with that being said, I think this episode is... FINISHED! what an episode but we didn't do the sponsor spot sponsors yay thank you for sponsoring us send us free stuff or money and we'll talk about your stuff but only if we like it <laughs> we got to talk about the gamecrafter.com If you're an independent game designer and you want to make a game so you can give it to shut up and sit down so they can tear it apart and dash your soul, crush your dreams, and just make your will to live less than it used to be, I'm kidding, of course, affectionately. In all sincerity, check out thegamecrafter.com. Because in this episode, we did talk with Matt Lees about the importance of being very specific in which publisher you choose to pitch your game to. And as a publisher or a game designer, you want to be careful to which reviewers you send your game to be reviewed. You want to make sure there's a match. And one way to make sure that your game is the best it can possibly be is by using the tools at thegamecrafter.com. They have... Not just all the ingredients you need as far as cards, chits, boards, tokens, boxes, etc. But they even have a review service that you can use right there embedded into thegamecrafter.com. By all means, please make sure your game is as beautiful as it can be and it is up to snuff as possible. And thegamecrafter.com is here to help you. Hey, thanks for listening to this episode. And thank you for being a friend. Travel down the road and gotta learn how to end these things better.